0: With Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra.
0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Ladies and gentlemen, Anthony Scaramucci coming on the podcast. He's been all over the place politically, but he's seen a lot, he knows a lot. He's been one of the decision makers and he's been one of the people thrown out of the club of decision makers. I met Anthony about almost a decade ago. We had breakfast. He had just come out with a biography. I was writing for the Financial Times. I reviewed it in the Financial Times. We decided to meet up for breakfast, had a fun conversation, interacted with each other a couple of times since then, not since he had really gotten uh, active in politics. But when I was invited by the New Jersey Tech meetup to give a talk and Anthony was on the panel as well, we had a good conversation, I thought, and I hope you will as well.
1: Welcome back to Propellify, awesome conversation with the co founder of Blue Jeans, the global president of Verizon. Up next, very excited about this session with Anthony Scaramucci and James Altucher, two big personalities. Anthony, if you don't know him, he's the founder and co managing partner of Skybridge Capital. He's a founder and chairman of SALT. He's written four books. You may also know him as having been the White House Director of Communications for 10 very interesting days. James is a hedge oh, oh, fund manager.
2: 11 days. Don't chip me, Aaron. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you missed, you, you missed out on 9.1% like <laughs> of my federal career. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean 11 you know, days. You don't want to start this event out with hurting my feelings, right? I mean, <laughs> don't
1: hurt my feelings. I'm sorry. Anthony Scaramucci, I think he's still the White House director of communication. So, James is a hedge fund manager, author, podcaster, entrepreneur. We've had him at many Propelify's. We've done work with, his, with the um, uh, Stand Up New York is Comedy Club he's written 20 books. He's got uh, many companies. Thrilled to have you here, James. I'm going to hand it over to you, but really excited about this. You know, we were think. I think it's going to go in a lot of directions, but we talked about a, the session as the future is what you make it because you've both been sort of propelled into headlines and had to react to how to take advantage of what you did in the limelight. And you've both had, you know, James recently with this article, certainly with this experience with the uh, the White House director, the communications director role. So, I want to inspire entrepreneurs and innovators to think about how do they take advantage and capitalize on opportunities that come their way, especially when they don't expect it. So, thank you both so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
2: It's, so, it's a real honor to be on, Aaron. Thank you, James. Good to see you again.
0: Yeah, good to see you. And, and Anthony, you've been through quite a bit since uh, since we last hung out. And you know, obviously, it was very. You know, we we were just talking a few minutes ago about. Uh, whether one should vote or not. And you you did what I think you made a good argument, which is you you raised the stakes. So it wasn't really about one issue versus another issue. It was about the the fate of the entire system. And obviously, you know, you were the White House communications director. You were part of the system. And, you know, before we talk about like, you know, what you've done since then and how this has catapulted you in various ways since then. I'm just curious, during those 11 days, you're that you were the white house communications director, what do you see from the inside that we don't really see on the outside? And, and not that that, not that this is a tell all, but just what surprised you on the inside?
2: Cause you were oh, oh, a big supporter yeah, of you know, Trump
0: yeah, before then.
2: Yeah, no, no question. But I, I, let me, let me spend 30 seconds on my political evolution because then I think it'll help you with where I am right now. So uh, I have no money as a kid. My parents are middle-class and my dad's an hourly worker. My mom's a housewife. I don't want to dishonor my dad by saying we grew up poor. We didn't, but we were middle-class Americans, but we were aspirational middle-class Americans in a blue-collar family living in a blue-collar neighborhood. So then I hit lotto and you know, metaphorically, I go to Tufts and Harvard Law School My first job is at Goldman Sachs. So now I'm career arcing to live with some financial independence and live a good part of the American dream. And I'm now hanging out with wealthy people, elites. I'm going to the World Economic Forum. I'm partaking in that life, which was different from the life I started in. So I sort of have a leg in both lives, right? I'm two miles from where I grew up. My cousins are clamors. They're auto class repair people. They're deli owners. You know, that's my family. And so I can see both sides of this picture of America. And so now I'm an establishment Republican. Why? My dad was in a union, and the unions out here on Long Island in the 1970s were controlled by the Republicans. And so Joe Margiotta controlled the union. So I signed up to be a Republican. The Reagan Revolution happens when I'm a kid. I now graduate. I graduate from Harvard, which is an old boys' network. But I'm a young boy in an old boy's network, and I have no network. And so you know, my parents didn't go to Harvard. I'd never hit a a, a golf ball or swung a tennis racket. So what am I doing? I start going to political fundraisers. I write my first check to Rudy Giuliani. I'm 25 years old. It's 1989. It's a $250 check. And I now begin the process of networking through politics. Am I interested in politics? Sure. Do I want to be a public servant? No but I'm using the political system to gain my network so that I can become a high net worth advisor at Goldman. That works, James. And so a succession of those things work for Romney. I'm now working for Jeb Bush. He comes out of the race. Mr. Trump recruits me. I'm a lifelong Republican. There are two choices. Now we're talking about policy, right? We're not talking about philosophical stemming of the system. We're talking about policy. Okay. There are two choices, I know Mr. Trump reasonably, not well. I don't think anybody really knows him well. I go to work for him. I'm having a lot of fun on the campaign, but then a rock hits me in the head. What's that rock? Oh my God, the people I grew up with who were aspirational blue collar families because the wages were high in the 70s have now become desperational working class families. Mm -hmm. They've lost the wage growth. Their wages are in decline. Uh, we, we, we priced my dad's job, his 1976 wages in 2016, 40 short years later, they're down 26.5%. That would have put the family on the poverty line or in a, with an EBT card. And now I'm traveling the country with Mr. Trump, and I'm seeing this anxiety in the country. And lo and behold, the establishment politicians, there's been a vacuum of advocacy for those people, I'm drawn to Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump wins the presidency, which he doesn't think he's going to win. We don't on the
0: campaign. He puts me in- Oh, oh, Anthony, can I ask you about that? I'm sorry to interrupt, but you say he didn't think he would win. Do you think, and and a lot of people have suggested this, do you think part of his plan was to not win so that he could then use, you know catapult to a platform, maybe a media company that he um, is in charge of to, to build his next- Career was that his strategy, and then he was surprised to actually become president. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think he wanted to win, and he was certainly playing
2: to win. You know, we went, we went from Manchester, New Hampshire, to Grand Rapids, Michigan, forty-eight hours before the last election day uh, at midnight, and we we had a rally at one o'clock in the morning in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I Remember that? Yeah. Okay. So, so you do remember it. So therefore. He was playing the win. He was emptying the tank to win. So wanting to win and thinking you're going to win are two different things. So no, he was playing for the stakes of the presidency. Uh, his silver prize, if you will, his silver medal would have been to create a media company or to have enhanced his brand by being a former presidential candidate, but the brass ring was to be president. And so when he won, He was excited about that. And so he then begins the transition, but he gets the job. But unfortunately, and again, I'm trying to say this without any emotion, just trying to be objective and observational. He gets the job. And sometimes you're in a job, James, and I have been there, where your skill set doesn't match the job well. And so that job requires you to seek out experts. That job requires you to expand the tent of people. That job requires you to be not brittle in the face of the onslaught of personal attacks. That job requires you to accept the system that you're in. And I'll tell you a very quick story, and I would encourage people to look at this if they have an interest in presidential history. Huntley and Brinkley, they interview John Kennedy it's one year after he's been serving in the White House. He's in the rocking chair in the Oval Office. It's a 28 minute interview. And they're asking him about the presidency. He's one year into the job and John Kennedy says, well, when I was in the house, I was looking over at the Senate. I said, man, that's where the action is. I gotta go become a Senator. And when I got to the Senate, he goes, well, okay, this is not so good. The action must be down the block. It must be down Pennsylvania Avenue, in the Oval Office, in the White House. That's got to be where the action is. And he looked at Huntley and Brickley. He says, well, now I'm sitting here. There's not a lot of action here. His, his implication was that the system was diffuse and there were checks and balances in the system. And so everybody had a relative degree of power, but no one had power supremacy. And so the, the system is uber alles. The system is more important than any one individual. And so unfortunately... That doesn't conjoin with the president's personal philosophy or how he sees himself. So you now have somebody that is a great communicator, let's stipulate that, has great political instincts, but there's certain aspects of his personality, dark aspects for that matter, that don't match the job that he's in or hold the system with great respect. And so now you have a dilemma and it starts to unfold over the three and a half years that he's in that job. And what we know from General Mattis, General Kelly, Rex Tillerson, uh, we know from his staff that's not family, that don't have his DNA or married into the DNA, we know there's something wrong. We know that he's not handling the job right. We know that he's trying to be a one-man Broadway show in that job. He's tried to move the Trump Organization and his management style in the Trump Organization down to Washington. That doesn't work. We also know that he's brittle and has become more brittle as he's gotten more power, which is ironic, uh, to personal attack. And then the really crazy thing that we know is he's remarkably insecure. Now, I don't know why that is, but he's insecure. And I can prove that to you because he doesn't like smart people around him. Uh, He's a very stable genius. He's smarter than his generals. When someone comes in and can complete sentences or well-educated, it ruffles him. It it, 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 it it causes him to attack that person. You know, I said somewhere, I think it was on Morning Joe, that he's a modern day Inca. He believes in personal human sacrifice. It just happens to be of the professional kind. He looks at somebody like Rex Tillerson, a pillar of the establishment, uh, well-liked, well-liked by political leaders, business leaders. Let me throw him into the volcano of my personal self-hatred.
0: But but like there's also Steven Mnuchin uh, uh, another Goldman Sachs alum along with you you know who appears to be very smart doing a very reasonable job as secretary of treasury they seem to to get along or he seems to Well, try- well I would encourage
2: you to read the New York Times magazine article on Steven Mnuchin that's coming out this Sunday mm-hmm. I'm quoted in the article and what I say in the article is there are some that will accuse Steven Mnuchin of being the president's lackey and sycophant there's there are others. And I believe I'm in the second category that look at Stephen as a very practical guy who's been willing to completely subordinate his ego for the betterment of his country, notwithstanding his personal legacy. And so Stephen has done a very good job of managing the president's personality. Uh, I, unfortunately, didn't have that skill set. I couldn't manage the president's personality. Maybe I can't even manage my own personality, James. I'm just being honest with you. Uh, Stephen could subordinate himself, get out of the spotlight. There's another cabinet member doing quite well who said to me, Yeah, the minute the president says, Hey, you're getting more famous than me, you better take a trip to Argentina or Antarctica and hide for a little while because he doesn't like it. Or yeah, the minute I- somebody says that you're President Kelly, President Bannon, you know, look out, you're going to get hit with the ray gun. And so Mnuchin has done a very, very good job of avoiding that. But there's a bigger problem. There's a bigger problem. The president praises autocrats. He denigrates democratic leaders of the Western alliance. He doesn't want to look towards science. He disavows science. He disavows things that he thinks are not in his personal interests, And that's a very dangerous place to be if you're the leader of one of the oldest standing, if not the oldest standing Republican based democracies, you know, Republic in the sense of a Republic, not the Republican party. And so for me, I'm very, very worried because you have to take him at his word. He wants that power. He wants to stay in that seat and he's made moves to disrupt the democracy. He's challenging the accuracy That's literally what a KGB agent would do in the United States if they wanted to create havoc, is challenge the accuracy of the votes and the reporting of those votes. And he's doing that from the office of the presidency. And so this stuff is very, very dangerous, James. Uh, He's also inciting anger. Uh, You know, we can debate about what he meant with the Proud Boys, and we can debate about what he meant with the very fine people on both sides of the Charlottesville fiasco. But what we can't debate is he does that all the time. There's 10 or 20 or 30 incidents where he's trying to split the participle to give a dog whistle to the racist, but just give enough chop meat to his friends to say, well, he's not a racist. But let me tell you something. If the racists think you're a racist, James, then you probably are a racist. Right? <laughs> I'm going to so, use that quote. So, so to me, as I was saying before we got the formal introduction in the podcast, and certainly you can use anything I said prior to that formal introduction, I'm worried about the system. the system is being stressed. And so as a higher order of importance in my life is my patriotism over my partisanship. So when I look at the system, I look at the stress on the system, we got to get rid of him because he's a malignant narcissist. And whatever you think of Vice President Biden, he's not going to wreck the pillars of the democracy or destroy the checks and balances that John Kennedy was complaining about in 1962, and so, and so for me, uh, then you got a bigger problem. Let me just finish because you have yeah. a very much bigger problem. That's those people I was describing to you. That is the uh, the smoldering ruins of a post-industrial society, post-manufacturing society in America, where there's a very large group of people that feel left out of the American dream, feel left out of the American community, and we need to through good public policy and great long-term ideas, it bring them back into the system and make them feel aspirational about their lives. Because it's it's bubbling up from the bottom. Our leadership is reflecting that angst. It may be contributing to it and may be firing it
0: up, but they're conjoined. And we have to figure out a way to break that fever. I, I agree with you that perhaps perhaps the most important job of a president is to keep the national dialogue somewhat peaceful and constructive so that we can move forward, so that when we're opposed anything, that society goes along with that and grows with that. But I'm, I'm curious, going to the 11 days you were a communications director, obviously your thoughts and opinions and philosophy about this were not transformed because I think you were consistent all throughout, but- You saw a lot during that time. You were part of the message and you were part of what was happening. What do you think went wrong during that time? What did you do wrong during that time? And what did you see from the inside that was different than you expected, being so close to the heartbeat of what was happening? I did a lot wrong, but let me just
2: transition for you. I'm on the campaign plane with then candidate Trump. He's a gregarious, charming guy. He's reasonably well relaxed, not sure if he's going to win or lose, sort of thinking he's going to lose, but trying hard to win. So he's reasonably relaxed. We are having a good time. He's a guy's guy. We're having a good time. He then wins and people can interpret it any way they want. But I'm just telling you how I remembered it. But I'm also offering a caution to people. People sometimes remember things the way they need to, not the way that they necessarily happen. But I'm going to give you my version He seemed nervous after he won. Hmm. He seemed, whoa, this is a big job. The totality of this is super high. And he was in full-on listening mode. You're talking about Steven Mnuchin. I can remember the Monday after the electoral victory on that Tuesday prior, Steven and I were in a conference room saying, wow, he's really listening. We're going to be able to put a really good cabinet together. We're going to get this thing going in the right direction. And then what started happening was, you know, the political intrigue, the backstabbing, and then he got a little bit repulsed by that and he got more insular. And then he went right back onto Twitter, super aggressive on Twitter, and right back to that sort of nastiness and that vitriolic stuff that probably helped him win the election, frankly, but probably is not the best attributes when you're trying to govern something. And to your earlier point, trying to unify something. So now I joined the administration July 21st Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon try to block me from joining in January. My why? Original, why did they try to block me? Yes. Well, I don't think it was personal necessarily to me. Uh, Reince didn't want anybody from New York in that administration because he was from Kenosha, Wisconsin, Kenosha, Nostrup. And he didn't like the relationship I have with President Trump because I had a, you know, Formal enough, but relatively casual relationship with with Mr. Trump. You know, he he had viewed me as a successful business person, and so I had my own business, and so we had a casual relationship. I wasn't a political operative or a political sycophant, and so I didn't talk to him like a political operative or sycophant. Nor did Stephen, for that matter. Uh, nor did Chris Christie. Nor did Rudy Giuliani. And so uh, Ryan's previous. Really didn't want anybody from New York in there. So he, he operationalized against me, which is fine. He put out some opposition research about the sale of my company because I, I accepted a bid from a Chinese company. So he's trying to make this nefarious tie to me. Trump basically said, OK, I can't bring you into the administration until you fix that. OK. And so I did something really stupid, cautionary tale for everybody in tech or anybody around the world don't put your pride and ego into things. You know, your ego is a healthy thing in some ways, but it can be your enemy in others. When your ego's up and your pride's up, your emotions go up and your intelligence goes down. And so once Priebus and Bannon blocked me, I got pissed about it and I called Mr. Trump. I said, they're two bad guys. When you want to get rid of them, call me, I'll come and take care of it. And so he called me and then there I am, I'm in the White House. And my principal job was to knock those two guys into Pennsylvania Avenue. I happened to go out with them, but that was my principal job. And I should have never taken the job under the auspices of that. That's That's a big mistake by me. And then obviously I trusted a reporter who grew up out here on Long Island with me. His father worked in the same construction industry as my dad, the families knew each other for 50 years. I made the mistake of trusting the reporter. So I never tell anybody, and this is another lesson for your viewers, take responsibility for your actions. I did something fireable. I got myself fired.
0: Well, what did you do? Can you, can you tell us?
2: Yeah, I, I made an off-color remark about Steve Bannon. I was talking about him doing something to himself in his office. You could look it up on Google. It's probably not even appropriate for this audience. It was really fucking funny, though. But anyway, <laughs> I ran to CNN with it, made me look bad, made the president look bad. John Kelly fired me. I'm out of the White House after 11 days. And I didn't, you know, listen, my fault. I accepted the responsibility. The president called me, said, how am I doing? I said, relax. You just made me as famous as Melania and Ivanka. I didn't have to sleep with you or be your daughter. So I'm totally fine. You don't have to worry about me. And I tried to support him. But now we're putting children in cages and we're separating them from their family members at the border. We're disavowing the intelligence agencies in Helsinki. We're calling the press the enemy of the people. Uh, we've got these Muslim bans that are intensifying. We're, we're uh, you know, we're telling the squad, the four Congresswomen, three of which are born in the United States, one is a naturalized citizen, all four democratically elected to our Congress, go back to the country they came from. And then this is when uh, Mayor Giuliani and I had a disagreement. I said, Mayor, They told your grandparents that, they told my grandparents that, my Italian-American grandparents, go back to the country you came from. My grandmother produced three children. One was my mom and two sons, both of which served in World War II. My uncle Anthony, who I'm named after, uh, was in the Normandy invasion. He survived that. He got wounded in France, in a village in France three weeks later. he was in an army hospital. Didn't want to come home because he wanted to stay with his troop friends. And he ended up at Potsdam with Harry Truman. And, you know, should my grandmother have gone back to the country she originally came from? This is like racist nativist tropes. This is as if John, if Charles Lindbergh, James, if Charles Lindbergh and Joe McCarthy had a baby, and the baby got raised, the nanny was Roy Cohn. And they and the and the baby grows up to become the president of the United States. This is full-on racist nativism and demagoguery that's unacceptable in 2020 in the institute it's unacceptable in any era but it's really unacceptable right now in the institutions of the american democracy at that level the american presidency so i reject it uh wholeheartedly and so you know rudy likes to be in the bubble so he didn't reject it he wants to drive around in the presidential motorcade i get that i have no interest in that i'm more concerned about the uh Public good of the situation than anything else.
0: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs, I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H-I-M-S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? (laughs)
2: Yes, I definitely
1: got to use hims for now. Not on. that
0: you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the hims app, track progress and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims. Dot com slash james Can you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hims.com/james. That's how I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs Hims. That's HIMS.com james for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash james. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required price varies based on product and subscription plan. So many careers have their ups and downs, their flaming shoot through the sky and then their flame outs. Yours has been more public than most having been at the, top of the chain in the, in the white house. And then 11 days later, one could say it's, it's almost embarrassing to, to be, be let go so quickly. How, what was your initial, I, it's, I understand your initial reaction was, Hey, now uh, this, this was interesting. Now I could do things with it, but how did you actually transform what happened to the next part of your career? Like, what were you thinking in the, in the weeks following leaving the white house?
2: Well, you know, I love you because you're a good friend. You're saying almost embarrassing. It was totally fucking humiliating. I mean, it wasn't almost embarrassing. It was fucking humiliating. It was like going through the Shawshank Redemption. And so. Did you cry? No, I didn't cry. Should I have cried? Maybe I should have. Maybe I had like all all that manliness that prevented me from crying, but uh, it was totally humiliating. And, but having said that, Um, I've got kids. I've got to be a role model for my kids. I've got to be a study of resilience. You can't get to where I've gotten to in my life if you don't have components of resiliency in your personality. And I said, okay, I'm going to show people that I can make the best of a really bad situation. And I'm going to handle myself in a way that's one part humorous and one part self-deprecating, but also one part reflective on what's going on. And so when I got on the Stephen Colbert show a week after I was fired, he said, did you think you were going to last in that job? I said, well, I thought it was going to last longer than a carton of milk in the refrigerator. I think it was going to get blown out for the milk when spoiled. You know, the point being, don't take yourself that seriously. Uh, Live by Mel Brooks's adage. You know, you're a great philosopher. You've written a lot of these how-to and self-improvement books. You know, my number one quote, that I live by and I think about it every day is what Mel Brooks has said. Okay, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. So just take a chill, do the best you can, enjoy your life and enjoy the process. Now, what I will say that humiliating experience was, which was akin to the Shawshank redemption for me, uh, was, uh, enlightening. It made me a better person. It made me more psychologically minded. It made me more empathetic It made me, having a public epic fail like that made me have more understanding for other people. So, you know, we're in a cancel culture. I've tried to help people that have been canceled. We're in a culture where we have this very self-righteous, sanctimonious attack towards each other. I try to be more reflective and understanding. And so somebody said to me when I broke from Trump in August of 2019, they said, wow, he's the same exact guy that he was in 2015 you know, why are you breaking from him now in 2019? And my answer is, well, he may be the same guy, James, but I'm not, I'm a totally different guy. I'm a well, well, uh, humbled guy. I have more perspective and more psychological mindedness. And so I've taken that experience, which you called almost embarrassing, which I'm calling humiliating, and I've converted it into something positive
0: for my life. And what what has been the next steps? Like, what have you... I mean, I know, but explain to the listeners, like, what have you been up to? How did you, you I, I, I've known you a long time. I, re, I remember reading your uh, autobiography back in, I want to say 2007 around there, 2008. Yeah, 2010.
2: You were yeah, very 2010. Nice. You wrote a nice. You wrote a nice review of my first book. I yeah, read, in The Financial I Times. That, but that was very nice. And then we had well, breakfast together. Yes. But I, I mean, I wrote that book because I'm like, okay, I got young kids How do you go from wearing a 100% polyester suit and shirt? I mean, I had a poly tie on, a poly shirt, a poly suit. I was 100% flammable for my first Goldman Sachs interview. And the partner was a nice guy. He put his arm around me. He's like, look, you're a smart kid, but you're literally the worst dressed person that we've ever met at the Harvard Law School. And I remember being, you know, very self-conscious about that. And then he said, well, you got to Go get yourself a suit. And if you want to go to Goldman, you got to go to Brooks Brothers and buy a suit. And I remember having a conversation with my mother. My mother was like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You look great. You know, we were just not in that realm. And so I wanted to write a write-a-passage book for people so that a young kid could pick up the book and say, okay, yeah, this guy's got a lot of flaws, but he was able to scrap himself to where he is. And so um, what am I doing now? I just I return to my company. I do the SALT conference, which we've now converted into a virtual or online experience. I just interviewed Jeb Bush this morning. I've got another interview coming up shortly. And uh, I'm growing my business. We're starting new products. Uh, we got hit a little bit in the March debacle and the uh, fixed income markets. We're coming back from that now. But, you know, we're running about $8 billion in capital. We've got offices in Florida and London and uh, Abu Dhabi. And I'm very, very proud of what we built. And I'm proud of the growth of what we're doing. Um, but I'm also, you know, involved in the political realm for now. You know, we're, we have an election coming up on November 3rd. I think the country's in trouble. And uh, I'm speaking out about it because I love the country.
0: So going forward, like, I sort of feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like this election is the last of let, I don't. Want, I don't like to use the word the old guard, but that almost seems the most appropriate. Like, it, there's never going to be a situation again where the Biden Trump generation is running for president. Is my guess. So 2024, 2028. Other than the the worst case scenario, which you described earlier with um, what could happen, where where do you do you see reforms in the system as a younger generation? comes in. Let's say it's uh, someone like an Andrew Yang from the Democrats or a Dan Crenshaw from the Republicans. I- I'm just throwing out names. I don't, I don't know. But do you see that being an improvement and, and things getting better just in terms of the dialogue and, and the hatred in the dialogue?
2: Well, I mean, you know, listen, I mean, some of these younger politicians are adopting the baby boomer polarizing polemical playbook. I'm hoping that you know we can get past that you know i'm hoping that we can transcend that and we can get to less about what's the left best solution or the right best solution but what's right or wrong for the society i'm hoping we can move in that direction um and i think that that generation frankly will do a better job than this generation but what i am worried about and this is sort of a metaphysical thing is our national purpose. So we were talking about my my uncle Anthony or George Herbert Walker Bush or Bob Dole. They all went to war together. And so if one was from Missouri and one was from Connecticut and the other one was from out here on Long Island, they served in the U.S. Army together and they lived with a national purpose and some level of civic virtue and patriotism. So when they came home from the war, there was some level of unity, you know, in the in the final days, Bob Woodward, when he wrote the book, the sequel to All the Presidents Men, he was interviewing some of the senators that remained nameless. But I'm pretty sure one of them was Bob Dole. And they said, well, you're a Republican. Why would you turn on Richard Nixon? And they said, well, you know, I was in Italy and we were fighting the Nazis and a German fired a sniper rifle into the head of my best friend and his head exploded while I was there fighting the Nazis. And so we were both fighting for the sacredness of the freedoms of the United States and the sacredness of that constitution. And so even though Richard Nixon was a partisan alongside of me, and we were both in the same party, he was breaking the law and disavowing that constitution. And my best friend, 25 years ago, died in Italy for that document. And I told Mr. Nixon, you know, I'm really sorry, uh, but on behalf of my best friend and us winning the Second World War, you got to go. Now, unfortunately, you fast forward now 80 years, and we don't have that perspective anymore or that hierarchy of order in our personalities about what's important. So, you know, the president can break the law, caught dead in his tracks, breaking the law, and yet, you know, we have this sort of equivocation about it and we have this rationalization about it, you know, and then we can also debate the Supreme Court thing. He has the right to do it, but are we now? in a middle school fight with each other on both sides where the two middle school students don't know how they're going to end the fight. You know, we started with Merrick Garland 10 months ago in the Obama administration. We blocked that. But now the flip side is, and we used all these hypocritical statements as to why we wanted to block it. But now we're 33 days away from election and we're pushing somebody. So what that does is it creates a lot of cynicism for the average voter. It tunes out the James Alteachers. They decide, hey, wait a minute, I'm just not going to vote. Uh, But let me say this to you, you know, you're a minority partner in your life if you're a New York City taxpayer, because if a dollar comes in and you're a high earner, you're only going to get 45 cents of it. So now you're a minority partner in your life. Bill de Blasio and Governor Cuomo and uh, Donald Trump, they're the majority partner in your life. They're getting 56 percent of the treasure that you're producing. So what should we do there? We 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 should really think about that. We should really get involved with the hiring decisions.
0: Yeah, so so uh when you when you left being communications director, and clearly you were a controversial figure. You know, you, you, they they gave you a nickname, the Mooch, and well, I had that nickname. I had, you had, that, nickname had that nickname before in
2: the 70s. But, you know, my I had a very politically correct German phys ed teacher. He hated all of our ethnic multi-syllable names. So he would pick one part of your name and he would call <laughs> you that. My last name's Scaramooch E. I got tagged the Mooch in 1972. No problem. I actually liked
0: the name, it didn't bother me. But, but the entire world now was calling you that. And just after you left office, people didn't really know, were you partisan for this, partisan for that? And of course, there wasn't this divisive, uh, fracture in in society in political dialogue throughout the whole society. Were, were were people when you walk down the street in New York City, were people upset at you? <laughs> like did people bother you? Uh, no, actually.
2: Uh, I think what happens is people that like you come up to you. People that don't like you, you know, I mean, unless they got a screw loose, they don't really bother you. You, you know, I mean, if you're in a public setting, I've been to some universities where I've been asked to speak and I've been booed, you know, but that's in like sort of a public setting in sort of an arena where you get cheers and boos. But I've really never had anybody come up to me in the street and like lambaste me or anything like that. My oldest son, who just graduated from Stanford Business School, he's like, Dad, you like destroyed me because you were with the Republicans. And so the Democrats hated you because you were with Trump. Now you're with Joe Biden. So now the Republicans hate you and the Democrats are never going to accept you. You're in nowhere's land. You're like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz hanging on the pole and you're ruining my ability to network. And I laughed. I said, well, maybe I'm getting closer to the truth, AJ. Maybe, maybe um, where I'm sitting is closer to the truth as opposed to something that's more politically interested. Maybe it's more principled.
0: Yeah. And I agree with that, which is part of Part of the question about voting, which is wh- how we began this, which is if your principles are that the system itself is having a problem, you know, for instance, there's no there's no reasonable third party that could win. And By reasonable, I mean there's there's no chance a third party could win. Even the ones that have got closest, like like Perot and and so on, or John Anderson in 1980, even. Uh, do you think there's an opportunity for a more diverse dialogue in the future with with third parties in the discussion uh, as opposed to kind of a a roughly, I don't want to say they're totally similar, but the Republicans and Democrats have at times been extremely similar with the only uh, different voices being too much of an outlier. No, no, listen, I
2: I mean, I, I, I think about this all the time. The short answer to the question is no, because these two parties after the 1992 entrance of Ross Perot, where he was successful at getting, 19.9% 19.9% of the vote, uh, they've created a very tight duopoly. They've they've created very high hurdles for third parties to get in, whether it's signed petitions, legal processes, they have sort of snugged up the duopoly between the Democrats and the Republicans. And so uh, maybe technology, maybe there will be some legislation that allows for a new entrant. But it's in their self-interest to prevent that, and so because you know they they like this perpetuation of power. There's a reason why people are in office. You know Chuck Schumer's the senator from New York now for 22 years, on his way to being 24 years. Nancy Pelosi's been in the House for three and a half decades. This is there's a reason why people want to stay. They like the power, and so they figure out a way to build a reinforcement and a predictability to their reelectability and they've done that through gerrymandering and they've done that through this very rigorous duopoly so i don't think we're going to break that fever what we're going to need is a white swan we're going to need somebody that enters the system and rather becoming super tribal inside the system they become transformational and if we can we become transformational then We really have this breakthrough. And I do think leadership matters because even though you could have discontent in the population, if you have really good leadership, really good leadership is honest. You know, really good leadership would say to the population, OK, yeah, I get the problem. Here's a list of things that we can do to solve this problem. And then the honesty would also require, hey, it's not going to be solved in a day or a week, but we can solve these problems over 10, 15, 20 years you know, I'll say this rhetorically to you, and I think you'll get where I'm going. What politician do you know has a 10-year plan for America, a 15-year plan for America? Yet Chinese have those plans, the Saudis have those plans, but the American government to right-size our entitlement issues, to rebuild our infrastructure, to come up with a industrial policy or a framing of where we would like the United States positioned, or how are we going to help people that need jobs training or reintroduction into the workforce, we don't have any plans. We have a lot of jingoism. We have a lot of sputtle that we're doing like this to each other, but we don't have any plans.
1: So if you You want to jump in here, if I can, James, for a minute, because we're going to get short on time. and It's a question I want to pose to both of you because you've both shared a very logical, but what's become somewhat of an idealistic view on, wouldn't it be great if we just had a leader who actually led and cared about policies and you could, and voters would, would vote on policy. But the reality is that's not actually, you know, James, we talked earlier about people tend to not even know the policy, right? It's a marketing and sales culture with clickbait headlines. If it was just about policy, we'd watch PBS, but we don't. We watch Fox News and CNN and MSNBC, et cetera, because they make it entertaining. So for this audience, as we think about how you know a lot of the, the people here are building the future of social media and e-commerce, like what would you charge this audience in thinking about? Because it's not just if it was just like I said, if it was just best on policy, We'd have different leaders, not just in this one, but for many years. Anthony, well, I'll go to you first.
0: Well,
2: you know, I don't again, I don't even want to oversimplify that, but uh, maybe we're doing it for entertainment reasons, but people know. You know, I'll, I'll say something and I'll turn it over to James. Lincoln said, Don't underestimate the American people. They may not appear to be as smart as you want them to be, but they have a very good nose and they can smell a rotting cadaver in their basement. And that was a metaphor. Or slavery. You know, he said, okay, this thing is rotting. We have to fix it. And I think the American people, whatever their policy anchors are, they know that there's something severely wrong. And we can get somebody that has some wonkishness and perhaps some charisma to explain to them what the hell it is in a relatively simplistic way, and then offer uh, an idea about how to fix it. And I think they would be drawn to that at this point, because I think most Americans are exasperated by the system.
0: I agree with what anthony's saying i do think that people don't really know the nuances of the issues like if you ask somebody what is a tariff from china which has been such a, a critical issue in this administration most people won't know what that means and uh many people are one issue people and they vote on that one issue and then they agree just automatically with all the other issues of of that party but I do think the narrative is important. Like the, the image of America that each candidate presents is, is important and how much they believe in that and how much their policies execute on that narrative. And I think that's what we're really voting for. And you just have to, you have to trust that the narrative is, is correct. Is it a make America great again narrative? Is it a, a narrative of, hey, let's get back to uh, unity and correcting uh, social... Injustices, whether they're correct or just perceived, I think those are the the roughly the and and, and one word is the narrative between uh, fascism and political liberalism. And again, are those the correct phrases for each person? I don't know if we know, but uh, I believe those are the narratives that are being fought right now in this election. And I think I tend to believe
1: because of you know if you look at the the Facebook feed, as I'm, you know, perhaps you've seen some of the news on this of a of a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter, the information that people are getting is dramatically different. So I definitely agree with you, Anthony, about um, I think people do see through it, but there is a real issue about making sure people get the information. I, you know, one of the, the theme of this event, we got a little off topic here, but that, that's all right. It's a very interesting conversation. But the theme of this event is how can we build a better future for all? And what would you charge this audience to do as we think about these issues, not just for the short term, but for, for the long term? about how they can leverage technology and entrepreneurship to build a better future for all. James, I'm gonna start with you and I'll end with you, Anthony.
0: Sure, I think a lot of people view our economic system as capitalism, which is incorrect. Capitalism is a word used by Karl Marx to describe the problems a society has when the only goal is the accumulation of capital. Capitalism is not a real word used by the original capitalists. I would rather describe it as innovationism and that we've always been a society that has encouraged policies that, that have, uh, brought about more innovations and innovations create prosperity. So I would encourage people to almost not completely ignore the national dialogue, but it's not as important as, as your own per your own motions to create innovation in your own life, create innovation for your community, support entrepreneurship, uh, have ideas that support the companies you're working for. We really live in an idea and innovation oriented economy, not, one that's uh, confused by political arguing. And I would, I would get back to that. Focus on yourself as an individual and how you can help instead of just throwing a vote out there. Yeah, Anthony. So,
2: you know, I would add to that because I would, I would say, I guess maybe this is my life experience because I became politically active. I would say everything that James just said, but create some space, some space for politics. Because what I said to James is true. They're running a good part of your life and they are impacting the quality of your life. If you're you're looking at New York City, bad political leadership is leading James to write the article that he wrote. Good political leadership leads to better quality of life, lower crime, more economic activity. So to be responsible, you have to take one slice of the pizza of your life You have to put it towards that, whether you like it or not. Even if you hate politics, hate politicians and the cynicism thereof, you still have to apply some pressure there because it's having a very big impact on your life, bigger than you would like to admit.
1: Anthony, are we going to see you run for office?
2: Dude, I'm I'm running for re-election in my marriage, okay, Aaron? All (laughs) I'm trying to do is stay married, okay? By the way, I'm on like a one-day term. I mean, I don't even know if there's topics <laughs> here, you know. I mean, I'm just That's my campaign platform right now, okay? We'll see. All you know, right. Life is long. We'll see. I appreciate yeah. the opportunity to be on this. James, it's great to see you. Aaron, obviously great to see you. Anthony,
1: normally we'd make our audience stand up, high-five their neighbor, and the kind of three high-five the camera for me. All one, right, all of us, one, two, two three, God boom. Guys. Thanks for all being right, with us. You. Next up, Jim Thank McKelvey you. from co-founder of Square. Thank you, Anthony, so much. Really appreciate that. James, really, really great conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Oh, and Aaron, say hi to Jim McKelvey. He's a good friend of mine.
1: I definitely will. He's coming up.
0: Okay. Talk to you guys later. Thank Thank you. Thank you.
1: Bye. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra